This is Opening the Court. I'm Asha Roll. And I'm the Shanae Perry. Today, we're talking about representation on and off the court. We have none other than the big boss herself, Katrina Adams. So Shanae, when did you first meet Katrina? I believe I met Katrina probably in juniors. She was working for USDA at the time, and and I was lucky enough to be in some camps that she was coaching, and she was very inviting, very warm, always, you know, positive. Yeah, I think my first uh, interaction with her was actually after I had a big win at the U.S. Open. I think I played on Louis Armstrong um, that night, and Katrina was actually the commentator that came down for my after-match interview. I was like, oh, wow, black lady, cool. Hey, Katrina, welcome to Opening the Court. We're super excited to have you with us. It's my pleasure, ladies. It's good to see you and uh, great to have the chat. Good to see you too, Asha. And I saw you, uh, I believe, at the end of May at the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program Gala that you guys hosted. Um, then I saw you over in Paris on, on TV, with, you know, cheering on Coco Golf and at Roland Garros. So where are you now and where are you off to next? I'm actually home. It's been a whirlwind um, of a couple of weeks. I have two... 10 year old nephews here with me right now. I've never had kids. So <laughs> to have two kids at once, whew, we've only had one day. I'm, I'm on day two. Okay, that's exciting. Um, so while we have you in the same time zone, we wanted to talk to you about representation in tennis. Uh, representation that goes beyond the court. Yeah, as we know, our sport has so many trailblazers, you know, like Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson, Billie Jean King, and the original nine. Um, I think we can put you up there with them. So let's talk about the trail that you blazed for Asha, myself, um, the rest of the players that are out there. Let's start with, where did you grow up? So I grew up on the west side of Chicago, in the hood. My parents were teachers. You know, I was an ultimate tomboy. My oldest brother had to take me with him wherever he went because my parents felt that would keep him out of trouble. It didn't. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was into sports early. Um, I started playing tennis at the age of six at Garfield Park. So I grew up playing Public Park Tennis. It was a program that was um, operated by the Martin Luther King Jr. Boys Club. So they had like an activity every summer. That summer happened to be tennis. And I was a tag along sister because I had two older brothers that were in the program. It was for nine to 18 year olds. And I was only six. So I had to like sit outside the fence for two weeks and kind of uh, bully my way <laughs> into the sport, if you will, by uh, harassing the, the coaches and my parents for two weeks. Uh, to let me in, let me in. And, and finally I got in and, and the rest is history for me. What what made you stay, stick with tennis? I loved the sport from the, the very first time I hit the ball. Um, but I had people that were behind me that supported me. My parents knew nothing about tennis, never played tennis. And so, you know, they trusted me with the people that I was with. One of the coaches that was running that summer program thought I had potential and kind of took me under his wing. I started taking a lesson, you know, once a week on the weekends. And then he got me into um, kind of a group lesson. The next summer, I went to a different um, summer camp. Youth Action was the name of the program. And it was actually an NJTL pilot. I found out many years later um, that it was actually an NJTL program. You know, my first tournament was a year later at ATA Nationals in New Orleans. And so, you know, we jump in the car and drive down to New Orleans and um, play the 10 and unders, got to the finals, got a, you know, for me, it was a big trophy in um, getting second place. And, and I was hooked because I was totally hooked on trophies. I was like, if I can do trophies in this, 
I'm in. So that's what it was all about. My goal was all about getting the trophy. And the big trophy, not the little trophy. Because you know how they skimp you out on the second place trophies a little bit? Mm-mm, no, nah, I wanted the big trophy. <laughs> <laughs> so you played ATAs. Um, did you play those for a while? For people who don't know, um, it stands for American Tennis Association. Am I right? That's right. It's predominantly for black players. But did you play those to a certain age? Did you get into any other type of tournaments during that time? Yeah, so I played ATAs all the way up until, I think, 1986. The ATA was uh, was founded because Blacks were not allowed to play in U.S. LTA tournaments back in the day. Althea Gibson was the first one in 1950 to play the U.S. Nationals, which is now the U.S. Open. But um, so Althea, Arthur Ashe, um, Zena Garrison, Lori McNeil, Mal Washington, we all came up playing ATAs in the summertime. You know, for years, the ATA Nationals did not coincide with USTA Nationals. So I got to play both. I would play ATA Nationals one week and then go and play the USTA Nationals the following week. And, and so it's kind of a cool week to kind of just be with your peers. People from all the different cities would, you know, would take dozens of players down. So you got to go kind of as a team. You were cheering on your people from Chicago, from D.C., from Houston, from Philly, wherever these groups of, of kids were coming from. And you got to build these relationships over the years. So I have some lifelong relationships with with a lot of the people that I played ATAs with many years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can remember um, seeing Sinead in the ATA for the first time, seeing another Black girl with a one-handed backhand uh, in that tournament. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it was definitely something that uh, you look forward to. And it, it was it was nice to see people that looked like you playing in a sport. Didn't see that that often when I was growing up. So it was great. And I remember, like you said, you travel with groups and me being from originally from D.C. We used to travel as a busload of kids and we'd go to Richmond and 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 play. So that was a great experience for me. Um, Having said that, in 1976, though, when you said you were playing tournaments um, with tennis being a predominantly white sport, um, when you were playing those other tournaments, it sounds like you have a mix. But when you were, um, did you feel what was your experience like? with that? Was that a bit of a culture shock? Um, do you even remember that experience? No, yeah, I totally remember it. I mean, I write about it in my book on the arena. You know, I'd say that I didn't know tennis wasn't a black sport until I started playing USA sanctioned tournaments. Um, because Chicago, the Chicago District Tennis Association is a very successful district in the U.S., in the Midwest section. Um, a lot of successful players have come out of that. So when I started playing CDTA sanctioned tournaments, I would show up and I was like, yo, where is everybody? Because <laughs> I was the only one. Um, but it didn't really matter for me because I was like, look, I got to beat whoever because I'm coming here to kick some butt. Um, I'm coming, I'm leaving with the big trophy. That wasn't a challenge. I think the challenge was probably more for them in seeing me and coming in and winning than mm-hmm. it was for me because... You know, I had goals um, and I, I think the culture shock was probably more not even for the kids, but more so for the parents. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like for me, I, I that was I had a culture shock when I moved from D.C. to Florida. Right. Like when I I was the first recipient of of a scholarship at Voluntary called Black Dynamics. And I was the one of the only black kids in my school. And I never really experienced that in Maryland or D.C. and growing up there and, you know, in the 90s. So. That was a little bit tough for me. Um, but I mean, looking back on it, I think it was it was great because it taught me 
you know, to be able, like you said, you, you're competing against people. Now you have to just go and just think about the competition. You can't think about who's there and who's not there. And I learned a lot from that experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, listen, I think all of us, um, those of us who are black in particular, you know, particularly coming from perhaps inner cities have had the experience of, of walking into something that was extremely different. And, you know, in my book, I talk about being the only one and what that means and how how we have to adapt. Um, and everyone, no matter what their background is, has been the only one of something at some time. And it's understanding what that feeling is and how you adapt and then and how you champion it. And I think the three of us in particular are really blessed to have gone through these experiences and, and being the champions that we became in our sport particularly as black ladies out there when the numbers were so few. I mean, there was a time when I could literally from the beginning through 2000, I could name every black female professional player that made a top hundred. Now I can't name them because there are, you know, there's so many other kids that have come through, um, which is great. There are more than there were, but we have a long way to go, but I think we are definitely on the right track and it's up to us the three of us on here and our other peers who have succeeded to make sure that we are continuing to develop and provide the opportunities for generations to come. Yeah, you guys uh, definitely paved the way for us. You know, Shanae and I, we definitely take that uh, responsibility of, of helping the next generation come up seriously. So tell me a little bit more about um, your professional career. Like, when did you know that you wanted to be a pro? My era. We didn't have tennis on TV 24-7 to understand what professional tennis was. I got to see it on the weekends, typically, you know, the Grand Slams, the majors. Growing up, you want to be a pro, but you don't know what that means because you're not really being taught that. So I was very good, you know, as, as a teenager and I was a young a young student, if you will. I graduated from high school at 16. I know a lot of people thought I was going to turn pro after 16. But one, my parents were teachers. That wasn't an option. Two, I wanted to go to college because I wanted the college life. So I went to Northwestern University and, and still didn't understand what turning pro meant. So it wasn't really until I got into college that I was like, and being successful in college, I was like, all right, so what's next? And and so that's when I started to focus on that a little bit more. I remember going down to uh, Houston and I trained with uh, Zena and Lori um, on one of their preseasons right before they went to Australia. And this was in my, I think it was December after my sophomore year. And, you know, I learned what it meant to train like a pro. Because I'm eating pizza every night, I'm drinking beer every day, you know, I'm, I'm doing the college thing. And and I went down there and and, and damn near passed out every day, right? Because um, it was 95 degrees with 90% humidity and they got me running the bayou that I'd heard about but hadn't experienced. You know, we're doing two and a half, three hours in the morning and then we're doing gym work and then we're running and then we're doing another practice in the afternoon. I was like... <laughs> seriously we gotta do this again i'm like i'm tired i'm i'm sore i'm not, what mm -hmm. fast forward i was in the best shape of my life i came back to school kicked everybody's ass to compete for you know for number one on uh, position and then i started to say okay if i can 
play with these girls and they're top 10 in the world. I think Zena was eight and Lori was nine. All right, it's time to start thinking about that. And then I, I turned pro after my um, sophomore year. I won the NCAAs in doubles. I was going to be returning number three in singles in the singles ranking um, for junior year. And I said, I got to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. You know, it's best to give it a shot now. I can always come back to school, but I can't always have this opportunity. And, and that's really the impetus as to what started me to focus on that. Because I just didn't understand what turning pro was uh, or being a pro until you really get out there. So this year we're celebrating 50 years on the WTA of a WTA tour's establishment. Um, I know two years before that, Billie Jean King and the original nine, they started the Virginia Slim circuit. Do you remember hearing about that when those women were doing that? And when you did, what did that mean to you? Yeah, no, I, so I started playing tennis in 75. So, you know, they started in 1973. Again, I didn't know what professional tennis was as a kid. I did see Arthur Ashe beat Jimmy Connors in the finals of Wimbledon. And so I knew that the sport was on television, which was a shock to me. Not only a shock, but here's this black band on, on my 12-inch black and white screen that's playing tennis. And I'm like, you do, you can do this on TV? So I had no idea what it, what it meant. Even growing up, I had no idea what Title IX was. Because when you're a kid, you're just out there playing. And, and everyone's talking about the possibility of you earning a college scholarship. So I didn't know that that hadn't always been that way, um, that it only, that opportunity had only come, you know, a few years before I started playing tennis or 13 years before I actually went into college. So when you're young, you just don't understand or, or know it. So I, I did not know the magnitude of, of what Billie Jean King and others had done or the original nine and starting the WTA tour. I didn't know what the WTA tour was, right? So it wasn't until much later when I actually joined the tour that I started to learn more about the history of the sport. And that was the one thing that Billie Jean would speak to all the players about is knowing your history. You have to know where you came from to know where you're going. Did you have just like a close knit group of people that you, know, you were on tour and you were just really cool with off the court? It was a close knit for for the black girls that were out there, obviously, because we were supporting one another. Zena and Lori kind of took me under their wing. Zena was my doubles partner and, and mentor right off the bat. We trained together. We, we roomed together and we shared coaches. Um, same coach, Willis Thomas, your coach, Janae, um, back in the day. And then Chanda came out, mm. you know, and so she was like the little sister and Jerry Ingram and Stacey Martin. So those were... You know, Stacey, Jerry, and Chanda were the next three um, under me that were out there and, and competing. So, of course, we gravitated to one another. Jerry still is like my little sister, um, you know, and, and we she trained with us. She traveled with us. What would you say the highlight of your career was? You know, my, my rookie year was probably my best year out there. So it was easy in your rookie year because players don't really know who you are. And, you know, it was pretty brash and bold and and um, hockey, if you will, um, going out there, serving volley or chip and charge, you know, winning doubles tournaments left and right, right off the top. 
but yeah, I always tell people that you you learn more from your losses than you do your wins. And my first Wimbledon, I got to the fourth round, and you know I'm on the other side of the net of Chris Everett, you know someone I idolized as as a champion, as an American. I was up five three in the first set, and I happened to look up at the scoreboard, you know, Miss Chris Everett Lloyd and Miss Katrina M Adams, and I'm like. I'm winning. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm winning. That was that was a kiss of death, right? Yeah. I'm like, I'm already in the quarter. I'm already in the quarterfinals. I'm like, I'm gonna be on the <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm, I got this. Blah blah blah. Five three, five four, five five. Whoa, um, I did win the first set, seven five, and you know we're neck and neck. It's three all in the second set, and then I didn't win another game. Um, you know, wow. the Chris Everett showed up. And I just ran out of gas because I was I mentally drained myself from getting off track, right? And trying to regain that focus, physically drained myself because I had to work that much harder to stay ahead and to stay level. So I learned from that where I needed to look after myself better physically um, and emotionally and understand what it meant. Because if I'm coming out here and I'm getting to this level immediately, I got to get right so that I can maintain that level. So that was um, that was probably a big turning point in my career. But, you know, I think the highlight is being able to be a professional on the WTA tour. Um, you know, that was, the, we were so few Black players out there. And people just don't understand that what we did, the three of us, to be able to make the tour was, a, was an accomplishment in itself. It's not an easy road. It's not something that you get drafted for or recruited for. We we had to earn our way to be out there, you know, grinding week in and week out. Every win mattered. Every loss mattered um, for us to be able to be on the tour and, and to be able to move week to week to a different city or a different country and to compete and, and make a living um, at what we love to do. And so for me, just the fact that I could turn pro um, and earn a living was the biggest highlight. Tell me a little bit more about after your career, because I know that that transition can be so hard for tennis players, right? Um, you know, tennis was something I did my whole life and I was lucky enough to like kind of all my off seasons find the passion for coaching. So I kind of I kind of knew after I stopped playing, I wanted to be a coach. So how did you navigate the after career path? You know, it wasn't easy um, because when I retired, actually, I was still competing and I got a call. It was at the French Open um, in 99. And I had been talking about that being my last year. I had had a bad ankle injury that I was just kind of playing, continuing to play on. Um, and I thought I wanted to go into coaching. Uh, you know, when you sit on the sideline with Willis Thomas and John Wilkerson for 10 years, 12 years of your career, you learn a lot. And, you know, I pretty much watched every match that Zena and Lori played if we were at the same tournament. And listening to these cats and understanding um, the nuances of coaching, and never I had never coached, but I I learned a lot and understood it. And you know, my, my last couple of years, uh, my doubles partner and I, we would 
just watch each other's matches. We didn't have a coach. You know, our career's running down. Yeah, money's running out, if you will, right? Because you're not making as much money. So you're saving by not by not having the coach. And we're just kind of coaching each other in, in matches when we're playing singles or just watching other doubles players. And so I knew I had a knack for it, but in, I, got, I got a call during the French Open. Um, pre-cell phones was in my room. I had a message to call back and I got offered a job. Brian Shelton was the, the then the head coach or the national coach who took the head coach job at Georgia Tech for the women's. So there was a vacancy that was coming up. And so when they called, I said, oh, well, how, you know, oh, wow, this is great. I would love to do that. So um, what's the time frame? They're like, um, like t- two weeks ago. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm at the French Open. I'm going to Wimbledon in two weeks. What are you talking about? So it was the first year I I'd ever came back after the French Open, I didn't play Birmingham. I didn't play Rainy Birmingham or Rainy Eastbourne that year. Ended up coming back and thinking about it. And I said, you know what? These offers don't come often. Not sure if I pass it up, if it'll come again. So I accepted it. I went back and played Wimbledon. And four days later, after coming back from Wimbledon, I was working with the player to go to clay courts. And I was able to play the U.S. Open to retire, officially retire. And I immediately took my name off the rankings so that I wouldn't be tempted to go back. And ironically, Serena was my last singles loss of wow. my career. Um, you know, I was 30, 31, which back then was old, not today. And she was this, you know, 17 year old. By the time I finished my service motion, you know, the ball was going by. And I was like, oh, wow. But I was like, you know what? I'm done. Physically, I was done. Mentally, I was done. And I started, I made a commitment to do something else. And so if I make a commitment, that's what I'm going to do. I remember being out there and watching Shanae and you, Asha, and, you know, being at matches whenever I could. I wasn't coaching you, but it was just having that support and having that person of, that you could visually see that you knew had been there mm-hmm. and was there. And I was, you know, I didn't interfere. It's like, if you want to ask me questions, you can. You know, it was just making sure that players like you guys were taken care of. And I'm going to say, Kat, um, no, you were great with that. Um, I think you were based in Atlanta at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember you would invite me to come and, and train there, but you were always very friendly. You were always very approachable, you know, because at the time when you're a kid, you don't think about USTA coaches. They're like, the mecca you know you don't think about them being really approachable but you were always approachable in a way that you could feel like hey i can talk to cat i can ask cat questions so i really really appreciate that from my end you know i think the joy that i've had um post-retirement is watching you know players like yourselves go out and be successful in in the sport that i competed in because i understand the challenges that you had i understand how hard you had to work and the, and the obstacles that you had to overcome to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so to watch you guys, and I'm still, you know, I'm like a proud mama when I'm watching Coco and, and Francis and Taylor, and, and, you know, and Yubi, as I call him, you know, he's done a, an unbelievable job in developing, you know, he's no bigger than a twig, but he's getting stronger. He's getting more mentally stronger, physically stronger and doing unbelievably well. And Michael Moe uh, was one of the kids that I also followed with, you know, it, we're coming. We're coming in. We're, we're going to soon be coming in droves, particularly on the men's side. We've been there for the women's side, you know, obviously mm-hmm. with Venus and Serena. 
And, um, and so it's that con- I continue to do that with all the players of color in particular. If I'm at a tournament, I'm going to be at your match. And uh, I don't care if it's a side court, you know, back court uh, or center court. It's, it's, I get joy out of it personally, but I, I also feel that it means a lot to the players um, that are out there, particularly if I have a relationship with them because they know my voice and, you know, I always call everybody boo, like, hey, boo. So <laughs> they, they know that all oh, the cats here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just been fun. Everybody knows when you're around cat, the light, the, the room just gets lighter and, and more fun. So I was a national coach for about four, four and a half years. And there was some restructuring that was going on within the USCA player development. And so we were all let go, actually. But it gave me a break and a moment to pause in that three-month window while they were trying to figure out what they were doing. And, you know, I had studied communications in college, knew I wanted to be a commentator, and I started focusing on that. And the Tennis Channel opportunity kind of came up. I actually pushed myself on them. I was their first analyst first black woman commentators. That's amazing. Um, tell me a little bit more how you picked yourself the tennis channel to become a tennis commentator. Well, I'd been speaking to ESPN back then. Remember, tennis wasn't on 24 seven. Um, it was really like the weekends of tournaments. And so obviously you want to be an ESPN commentator. And that's pretty much where tennis was. And I wasn't good enough for ESPN because I didn't have a Grand Slam title. And and so I didn't have the opportunities to to kind of squeeze in. And because they didn't have a lot of content then, you know, they had people on the contracts to do certain number of hours or weeks or whatever it was. And they didn't even have enough content to fulfill those obligations. So they weren't really hiring any new people. And again, this is 2003. And so that's when I was speaking to Pam Shriver, who was with ESPN. And Pam had brought me on as kind of a guest analyst here and there while I was still on tour. So I got my feet wet and I kind of realized that, hey, I would love to do this. This is awesome. Um, one, because I had an analytical approach from always sitting on the sideline and next to, you know, John Wilkerson and, and Willis Thomas and Lori McNeil. Lori was brilliant in breaking down somebody's game from the sideline. Pam knew that Tennis Channel was was going to be, was being formed. It had not yet gone on air and she recommended that I go, you know, speak to the people at Tennis Channel. So I kind of reached out to see if I could get an opportunity to speak to someone and I did. So this was in December. I got a call um, in early April or March to see if I could be available in a couple weeks to go do the Fed Cup um, in Lowell, Massachusetts, where the U.S. was playing the Czech Republic. And that's how that, that career started. And so, you know, I've been doing, I did it, I did it hard for 10 years, week in and week out, started winding down once I started to get into my um, role at the USTA and, you know, sporadically did some stuff and still doing some stuff sporadically right now. But that's how I really got into commentating. And during that process, got involved in the USTA. Um, as a board member, as an elite athlete. Um, and that's how I kind of transitioned to the business side of the sport. 
So you've been trailblazing all, all over the place. You were the first uh, African-American female commentator at Tennis Channel. And then you were the you know first African-American female president and CEO of the USTA. Tell me a little bit more about that position. Yeah, I mean, so I was at the head for four years, which was a pretty amazing experience, pretty hectic experience, but an opportunity for me to to leave a mark on our sport going forward. Um, when I became the president, I really focused on three initiatives. One was actually the Hispanic initiative and getting more of our Latinx communities engaged, more engaged in our sport. We had no representation really from our uh, Latinx communities. And so I wanted to make sure that these communities were had the opportunity to be introduced to the sport going out and doing grassroots programming. I also focused on high school tennis and getting more of our high school tennis players to continue to play tennis outside of their high school season because they weren't being connected to their local programming in the local communities or still being able to have competitions outside of high school to keep them interested. We want them to continue so that they can continue to play tennis as they you know, become adults. Um, and I focused on sportsmanship because I felt that sportsmanship in our sport, our sport is built on sportsmanship and there is not anymore, um, particularly at the junior level with the attitudes of the players. But that is stemming from the attitude of the parents and the coaches because they're the ones that are instilling this type of behavior into the players to do what they're doing on the court when it comes to cheating or when it comes to bullying. It was unbelievable what I was, what I had heard, but then now I had witnessed and I'm like, okay, something's got to stop here. So those were, those were three main initiatives. It was really, you know, the focus is about growing tennis in America and making tennis look like America from all the diverse backgrounds that we had. They're still trying to do that. It's still a focus. Um, and I do think that, you know, you plant the seed and if it can be, you know, I planted the seed watered it and nurtured it. And now we're starting to see those branches, you know, grow. It's never what you do in the the years that you're there. It's what happens five, 10 years later from the seeds that you planted. And so I think we're we're now kind of reaping the rewards on, on some of the things that I, I put in place. Yeah. I love those initiatives. And I love that analogy that you used about planting seeds. Um, I think Shanae and I can take that with us in our professional careers um, to, you know, better help and better serve uh, the next generation. As an African-American a woman and a former player, what 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 did you want to bring to the position? Um, what were your goals and expectations when you started the role at USDA? I think the first thing that I wanted to bring to the position was diversity. Um, when you're the first, uh, it's a big statement, but there's also a lot of pressure and a lot of expectations on you. So I also knew that I had to always be on my P's and Q's um, no matter where I went, um, no matter who I was speaking to. And, and make sure that I was prepared to address different groups or respond to questions. And, and so in bringing, you know, someone who looked different, I think automatically raised the awareness um, in our sport for people that wanted to be in our sport that might not have gotten, wasn't in the sport, 
or people that wanted to be on the business side of the sport that now saw that it was possible. You know, Billie Jean has always said, you have to see it to believe it. And I think me being in that role allowed other people to believe it. You know, I had many people, parents, um, coaches that would reach out to me to ask questions about different things that they would have never reached out to other presidents uh, of the USTA. And I was one that tried to make sure that I responded to everyone who reached out because all people want is to be heard. Um, and, and so I recognize that, you know, when you're a minority, you, you understand that. And so I think I went over and beyond to make sure that I was responsive to people outside of the business side of the sport, but, you know, our players and coaches that, that reached out. Um, and I think that was critical. And, and so in, in bringing that to the forefront was, you know, I think uh, one of the most powerful things, but also just bringing my own knowledge to all the levels of tennis that the USCA supported from tennis in the parks, from grassroots, from high school, collegiate, um, being a coach, being a professional player, being a commentator. Mm-hmm. And speaking of uh, kind of seeing it to believe it, um, why did you think it was so important that representation in tennis goes beyond the court? Well, it's not just representation in tennis as it is in business. Um, you know, we don't have enough people in leadership positions of color, mm-hmm. um, people of color. And so, you know, me being in that role at least allowed people to think that they could be in those roles, whether it's the president or whether it's in the C-suite whether it's a managing director, whatever, whatever that is, it allowed them to feel that they had an opportunity. But in having the opportunity, it's making sure that we are truly representing the players, the player bases out there from, and it's not about professional tennis. It's about our collegiate players. It's about our national players. It's about our high school players. It's about our junior players, right? It's about our tennis in the park players. And so when we look at our sport, tennis is a sport for a lifetime and it's the healthiest sport out there. And if our number one mission is to grow participation, I want to know that the people that are running and operating my sport understand me as a person of color, understand me as a female and what my needs are so that I can see myself in that sport. So if you don't see people in leadership roles um, that are there, then the assumption is that they don't care about me or they don't really want me to be involved. And and I think that is critical because too often if it's someone else and they don't understand our struggle or our challenges, it becomes biased, unconscious biasness because they just don't know. Mm-hmm. But when you have someone of color in these roles and you do understand it, you know, it's no, it's no longer an unconscious biasness. It's bringing the bias to the forefront and able to explain things in a different way so that you don't feel like certain decisions are biased. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's critical in business as a whole, um, and in particular in, in our sport, where we're challenged with that on a daily basis because we assume that we get something or don't get something because of the color of our skin. And if you have someone that can explain it yeah. and, and, and in an unconscious, I mean, in an, in an um, unbiased way, 
then there's relief and, and there's confidence. Yeah. When I became the executive director of the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, which is the one of the NJTL chapters here in New York next to NYJTL, um, what you guys work for. So, you know, full circle in life uh, for me to be running an NJTL now. Um, and it's about reaching back and pulling forward, making sure that these kids have an opportunity to succeed, not just in tennis, but in life. Because as you know, we understand how the life skills that you learn in sport can really develop you holistically as, as a person. And, and that's that's what I continue to do and making sure that I can provide these opportunities because I know what tennis did for me. I know the places where it's taken me. I know what I've accomplished. Um, and there's no reason why no one else can, or someone else can't do the same thing. What advice do you have uh, for former players who are about to retire, but are not sure uh, what's next for them? Yeah, it's a good question. I think everybody's different. And so I think it's understanding what your passion is, understanding what you're good at. In doing that, make sure you're networking. I mean, I, I got to where I am because of the relationships that I built a long time ago on tour. I mean, you're you're in some of the most amazing arenas with with you know, the, the CEOs of these companies that are sponsors, um, you know, these tournament directors and, and your, your tour directors and having conversations with them and, and dropping nuggets on, Hey, what your interests are, because you never know how five, 10, 15 years later, that one conversation can help you. You know, when the CEO of, I'm going to just say, uh, of a chase, you know, who's, being at the U.S. Open and you've happened to be at a sponsor's event and just having a conversation, they may have remembered that conversation of your interest in, in finance or whatever it may be. Um, but it's understanding that you have to network as a, as a player um, week in and week out. And the challenge is, is that when you've worked at the highest level of any career, so we're talking about tennis, and then you go into business and you have to start at the bottom to work your way up. It's understanding that there has to be a transition period. You don't just come in and go to the top of anything. You have to work at it. But I think the work ethic of tennis players allows us to say, I'm all right down here because I know what it takes to train. I know what it takes to improve. I know what it takes to develop. Um, and once I get past these levels, then it's, it's on me to soar. And, and so patience is definitely the virtue, but it's understanding what is your passion? What are you good at? Wow, Katrina, you, you're dropping uh, some major gems on us uh, this morning. <laughs> and thank you so much, Katrina. This interview means so much to us. Thank you, ladies. I enjoyed the conversation and, and best of luck. Love it. Wow. So for, for even more insight from the big boss, uh, you can pick up a book, Own the Arena. Um, I actually have a signed copy. Thank you, Katrina. Um, and where can our listeners go to to get your book? Um, you can go to my website, katrinamadams.com. Um, that's with my middle initial N. Um, and you can click on buy a book and it can go to, it'll take you to different um, stores that have it, or you can just go straight to Amazon or Barnes and Nobles um, who are also carry it. So um, yeah, own the arena, get in the head and, and making a difference is succeeding as the only one. And um, the only one for me represents either being the only woman, 
or the only black person or the only person of color in a lot of different arenas and understanding how everything I learned in tennis prepared me for everything that I've done um, in, in my career thus far. Yeah. Thank you for my end too, Katrina. Um, you know, I, it's, it's amazing to, to hear this, your story, the history behind, like you said, you got to know the players before you. Um, clearly I know you, but I didn't know this much detail. Um, so I'm really, really excited to, to have heard this and, and to be a part of this. And, uh, I appreciate it, Katrina. Thank you so much. Thanks ladies. You know, I love that Katrina is still um, at the grassroots level. She's the president of the Harlem Junior Tennis League at an NJTL. So she's still giving back. It's similar to kind of what Shanae and I are doing over at the NYJTL. I know for me, tennis gave me so much and opened so many doors for me. So it was super important for me to give back to the next generation. And the main thing is she's still out supporting tennis players, American tennis. It's inspiring for me because that's a role model that has shown me the way that you have to give back. You know, I'm in awe of her um, and I love the fact that she is just always about the next person, the next generation. And she's always trying to build people up, never tear people down. And, and I just, I love seeing her out there. I think uh, representation matters, right? She made me feel like maybe I could be the president of the USTA one day. Similar to kind of how, how Barack Obama made me feel when he was first elected. So I think that seeing yourself in di different roles and, and roles of power are extremely important for the next generation. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opening the Court. I'm Asha Roll. And I'm the Shanae Perry. Opening the Core was created and produced by Ji Young Park. Our editor is Satoko Sugiyama. Music was provided by Epidemic Sound. Please follow us at Instagram at openingthecourt.podcast. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button.